I mean, you don't care about rabies from bats living in your ceiling. So what do you care about COVID? The bats are my friends. Welcome to the 2021 year in review, our year in cinema episode of the Pink Smoke podcast. I am your host, Chris Funderberg. I am joined by my co-host, John Cribbs. Happy um, New Year, Chris. Happy New Year. I hope your, your as Christmas break was as good as mine. My girlfriend and I did something very special for our first Christmas together, which was give each other COVID. So I spent, you know, it was literally like Christmas Day, just sort of hanging around. I got the mild COVID. It was like one night. Was I had like a fever and felt really bad. I like throbbing in my teeth, and then the next day I was fine, and I've been been fine. And she was she was the same. So we got that uh that mild Omicron, but you know we're in the we're in the new year now, and I feel I feel the same. <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, yeah, you know it's it's a it was a it was a little weird, but I think we're we're doing doing good. Um, I, I think with this episode, John, you and I have just discussed it sort of loosely. Um, I think it's a little bit of sort of a, a, a state of the union address for the pink smoke as much as it is um, going to be a list of, you know, our top 10 films. I will say this episode is going to end with a top 10 list that's very definitive and that you will be interested in hearing and that we stand strongly behind. Uh, it's just not going to be our top 10 films of 2021, is it, John? That's correct. So we used to, this used to be uh, something we would do every year for the website. This was our most popular thing. To the extent that we got any kind of readership and got noticed, people would read our year in reviews. And the idea was that it wasn't a top 10. It was just we would talk about every interesting movie we saw that we felt passionately about right in depth. We would give out these sort of like, uh, you know, jokey awards for things and write about our favorite movie moments uh, from the year. And we would try to avoid doing worst of lists. It was sort of the idea that, you know, drives the side of hearing what people are interested in is always more interesting than hearing about what they dislike, you know? And it was something was huge. It was massive. And it, it really tried to touch on, at least in mine, everything that happened in movies in that year when, when I would go and watch movies. And uh, over the past few years, we've kind of stopped doing it. And I can talk about why I don't really do it anymore. But I was just wondering, you know, why, why did you stop writing these things that sort of were in a lot of ways, the genesis of the pink smoke website. Yeah. I thought about that a lot. I mean, you know, I kind of tend to think of things just in recent memory and obviously you can blame COVID and things like that over the last two years for seeing less and less new films and having less and less new films to choose from theaters closing, not going to Toronto film festival, and just how hard it is to get excited for something that debuts on your laptop. I mean, but that's, as you said, you know, we haven't done the year in review for several years now as, you know, predates COVID. So I think even before that, it was something where towards the end of the year, I would get so crazed and anxiety induced over all the things I had missed or 
the things that you know I might be leaving off the list and I would watch four movies from that year a day for like two weeks like leading up to the final list the kind of what seems to be the, the same thing everyone does when lists start popping up and someone says oh I hadn't even heard of that one I gotta throw that on the list and then you're just watching movie after movie after movie of new films and it became this really arbitrary thing for me and it wasn't fun and it really made me anxious and nervous and everything like that and it's not the way I want to go into a mindset of yeah. talking about things that I really like. It just seems like, do I love the last duel that much, <laughs> you know, or am I just, you know, do, putting it on there to make an arbitrary top 10 list. So. Well, we never I did top 10. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. And it became like, if I could just write like one long thing about my very favorite thing of this year, that would be something I love. It's also, I think, I'm starting to get a little bit of Stella, Stella-itis, you know, our friend Tony Stella, who does not watch a ton of new movies. You know, he he mines old films. He goes back years and years and he goes to appreciate older films and rewatches films he loves. And I don't know if it has something to do with getting older, but I appreciate doing that so much more now than I ever used to. And I'd much rather find like some great 1940s or 1930s like pre-code movie that I've never seen and appreciate that or go back and watch a ton of my favorite movies again that I haven't maybe watched in 10 or 15 years that to me these days is so much more exciting than yeah I guess I got to go see Dune now you know because everybody else is which isn't to say you know that there can't be exciting stuff and I do have favorites from this year I do have movies that I loved and thought were really great but I just don't want to make it the way it's become now which is just such uh, a required thing when you go yeah. on Twitter and you just see everybody, you know, with their top 10 list. And it's like, I don't want to just do it just to do it. I want to do it because I actually feel passionate about something. Yeah, it's weird for me. I used to see everything, like however many movies you think you saw. I saw more. I was a, a theater programmer, so I had to watch movies for a living all day. I'd go to the Toronto Film Festival and we were the hardcore people who would watch six or seven movies every single day for a week and and I would watch everything in the theater too you know I there was it was not uncommon for me in my 20s to just do a random triple feature and I mean everything I would see like you know the new Bellatar and the new Ninja Turtles movie in the same day it really was across the board total everything And and the new Bellatar Turtles movie Exactly. Exactly. I would watch a Bellatar Ninja Turtles movie. I bet it would be terrible because he's not a very good director. But um, no, he's fine. There's plenty of Bellatar movies I like. What am I even saying? I've also become a negativist is a little bit of the problem as well. But I stopped seeing, I stopped watching everything at a certain point. And I, you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, you get older, you don't have as much time, you got your own families, you're doing things. And I'm not sure that's true. If anything, I watch movies with my son now. That's what actually keeps me watching movies more than anything, especially new movies, is to watch them with my son. But I'm just not, I'm not interested anymore. I had real trouble making it all the way through Dune. And I only made it to the end because I was watching it with my dad and sort of my delight at his increasingly enraged reaction with the movie and realizing it was just all prelude to a part two was one of the more like, uh, 
I, kept me engaged more than movie itself did. And like, I turned off the new Matrix after a half an hour. I just turned it off and I was like, I'll finish this at some point. And I didn't. And I, you know, maybe I will at some point, but I'm just not interested, you know? And that's something that I feel a little strange about doing a year in review anymore, where it's like, I'm not going to see Licorice Pizza or Last Night in Soho. I just won't. They're just not movies I'm ever going to watch, you know, because I'm not, they don't look interesting to me. They're filmmakers that I haven't connected with in the past. And I'm just not going to see them, you know, like I don't get much out of Wes Anderson's movies. So I'm just not going to watch them anymore. I'm not going to watch the French dispatch. And And there's no, commentary either way too it's not even like this is a decision that i'm making to throw down the gauntlet about anything it's just like these are filmmakers who are not for me and i'm not gonna give them a shot i think that i think an even better example because those are all filmmakers that i don't particularly like todd haynes the velvet underground doc is an example of something that basically my whole life up until my 40s I would have watched. I'm a huge Todd Haynes fan, and I would have given that movie a chance, but I just don't give a shit about The Velvet Underground. I just do not care. And in the past, I would have watched it because it's Haynes, and I I just would have felt like I owed it to something or I could find an angle, and maybe he did something great with it. But like, I just don't care anymore, you know? And I don't watch movies that I don't care about anymore. Um... And that's, I think, a big change for me. And I think when you're doing the year in list, I used to think when we would put ours together, you would read some critics, like professional national critics who would do like a top 10. And then you would, they'd sort of talk about the movies they'd seen over the year. And you'd go like, wait, there's like a hundred interesting movies they have not fucking seen. You know, like there's just like a hundred movies that this guy who writes for whatever, you know, I can't even think of outlets anymore, you know, that the Cleveland Plains dealer, he just hasn't seen, you know, he hasn't seen the new five new Mieke movies this year. How, why would you write a year in review if you haven't seen them, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I'm in the same position now where it's like, I feel like to write a year in review, I should see licorice pizza, which like, I don't know, maybe there's some chance I would have gotten something out of it. Um, but do you find yourself feeling compelled to watch those movies you're not interested in anymore? Do you still see like the new Edgar Wright movie, knowing that you're not a particular Edgar Wright fan? For me, it's like coming up to the race line every single time these days where it's like, what, Gilbert Del Toro's Nightmare Alley? I'll definitely, yeah, I'll see it as soon as it's out <laughs> in the theater. Like, why not? You know, I don't hate Guillermo Del Toro, you know, it's, I'm sure it'd be a good time at the movies and, it comes up to the day it comes out. I'm at the starting line. I'm at the race. I'm ready to go, ready to dash. And it's like, um, I don't know. And again, you know, of course, the whole closing of theaters and COVID had, plays a part in it this year. But even before then, it, it was the same thing where it was like, I just can't get totally excited. And again, you know, you use some examples of filmmakers you're not really a fan of. Or after 20 years, you know, you have a pretty good feeling of what that film's going to be, whether you're going to like it or not. Yeah. You know, if it's a new Edgar Wright, you're like, I kind of get it already. You know, yeah, I, I don't I know how I'm going to feel about this movie. I'm, I'm predisposed to have this feeling. So why bother to go through with actually watching it? Yeah. 
Nightmare Alley is a great example of what you what you bring up where there's there's so many movies in the past several years that I think I would be that like you I'm right at the starting line I think I'd be interested in them like the card counter or or nobody that I just didn't see I didn't even see Vendetta yet you know Mm -hmm. Benedetta um and I'm going to see that one. That's one I'm definitely going to go out of my way to see. But there's a lot of movies like Nightmare Alley. That's just the perfect example of like, I, I would like to see that, I think. But then I just don't, you know, I, and that's that's a different category from, uh, you know, French Dispatch, where it's like, I just don't get much out of Wes Anderson. Uh, I guess he's a different example, because when I met him in person, I fucking hated him and wanted to punch him in the back of the head i guess that's a slightly different category um but it's there's just movies also that i just don't see for no reason that i absolutely would have seen before and that i can imagine liking like i've i've got to be into the card counter right like every people you know who don't like paul schrader like that although i've been sold a false bill of goods with him quite a few times you know i'd say going back to affliction walker yeah no (laughs) affliction is the one where people are like nah he really did something interesting this time and i'm like oh really and then i watch it i'm like you motherfuckers you got me again with paul schrader but there's also there's also another category uh of of movies um that i find i run into more and more that prevent me from doing the year in review and that's i went out our good friend bill tech he was like oh have you seen this movie shiva baby it's great you're it's really interesting movie and i'm like oh i'll I'll watch that you know Uh, bill says it's good i trust bill's taste and um it's on a lot of top 10 lists and i watch it and it's not that i liked it or dislike it I have literally nothing interesting to say about it. Like I'm not even interested in my own thoughts on it. It's, it's just a movie where I saw it and that, that was it. It's not even a matter of liking it or disliking. It's just like, I don't have a single goddamn insight about this movie. I don't have a single interesting thought about it. It's a movie I saw, you know, and, and what, what do I do with that? You know, I got to weigh in and have an opinion. I don't have, I'm not interested in my opinions on it. They're not interesting, you know? And so I find that I run into those movies. Another, another one that's in that same category uh, uh, for that is the, um, I can't remember what it's called now. The drive my car. What, yeah. what is that just called? Drive my car. Drive my car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's another movie where like, I don't have a single thought about it. No thought whatsoever. Okay. There, okay. there you go. Do you, do you have those kind of, do you feel that way anymore? Like you've sort of lost your heat about getting into it over like uh, about Chiva baby, about just some the, the many saints of Newark, just some movie you see and have no thought on, you know? Yeah. yeah I think it's, I, th- I think I definitely have a fear of not having a thought on things or rather get having to get into a conversation about a movie where you have to pick a side. I mean, there were so many divisive films this year. Yeah. It's just not a conversation you ever want to get into where it's like you forced to say, you know, are you for this movie? Or are you against this movie? You know? And it's like, that's not even the kind of discourse that I'm interested in. Or, you know, you get to a film like the green Knight, yeah. for example, where it's Which like, I, didn't I know <laughs> I didn't see it either. I know that like, I don't like Lowry. His films just 
they're, they're, they're fine. They just do nothing for me. I just, again, there's just no, there's nothing I can, uh, there's, there's no way for me to immerse myself in that film or like come out of it with any kind of great insight. Why am I going to bother seeing it? You know, <laughs> because I don't want to become one of those people to say, oh, the Green Knight's the worst movie of the year or the Green Knight's the best movie of the year. I don't want to get in the middle like you guys do get out. You know, more yeah. than anything, it's like, I would have seen the Green Knight, but I don't want to be, you know, involved in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much exactly. I mean, what else? Um, I felt that way. I, I felt that way about there's a lot of um, movies I saw this year that I wanted to like more than I did. And I want to stay away from the conversation about any of them because, of course, the patron saint of movies that I don't like as much as I want to. Jane Campion made a movie this year who is like, I just don't want to get into it on Power of the Dog. You know what I mean? Where like the only thought I have about Jane Campion is that from at least from Portrait of a Lady, we've known her sense of how to cast male actors is completely haywire and broken. And that she's she miscasts people to a degree that it's a artistic trait at this point and that's my reaction to it is that like wow she did it again she just completely miscast this thing again like making john malkovich the sexy guy in portrait of a lady it's just like she does or or you know harvey keitel the like you know uh young hot dude in in the uh the kate winslet brainwashing movie you know cult movie um it's just she's got this very weird sense of what men are <laughs> that's that it's a personality trait but it's it's just i don't want to have to are you for power of the dog or against it it's like i want to be for it but i didn't get that much out of it another there were a few movies like that yeah, it's funny which why you're on that yeah it's funny because my main takeaway from power of the dog was it didn't feel like a jane campion a uh, campion movie for the first time like yeah even her bad movies feel like Jane Campion movies. Yeah. And now you've given me something that makes it like a Jane Campion movie. <laughs> oh yeah, she did miscast Cumberbatch in that film. That's a good point. Or, or Meg Ryan and in the cut, like what the fuck are you doing with the casting in these movies? It's, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have those weird, any of those weird little artistic tics that you find in her other stuff. Um, but she's definitely a, a director where I would say her entire career is like, I, I, I want to like this more than I do. There's problems with this, uh, but the problems are also an expression of her artistic personality. So it feels like I got to take the not greatness of it to get at the greatness of her. You know what I mean? It's, it's a weird it's a, it's a weird thing where it's like, am I saying power of the dog is good or bad? I'm not saying either of those things. And there's definitely, there were definitely a lot of movies that I, this year I felt like I liked this. I don't, I don't want to be on its side or against it. Cry Macho and Shang-Chi are two that I think of where it's like, I enjoyed both of these movies. I'm, I don't, I, I'm going to put them on a list, calling them one of the best of the year. This feels like insanity to do this, you know? <laughs> well, but am I yeah. saying they're bad? I'm not saying neither of them is bad at all, except that Aquafina, like I, none of that, you know, that's obviously bad. But <laughs> Well, with the uh, Cryo Macho, especially, I, I grouped that one with uh, Card Counter, where it's yeah. like, this is a film, it's a comfort film more than anything, because this is a filmmaker and artist who you followed for decades. 
Yeah. And you, you, you know their stuff and you know that person. And for them to do this kind of film, which on the one hand feels like they could do it in their sleep. You know, it just yeah. feels like this is the kind of thing that they could easily achieve with barely any effort. So it's not really aspiring to greatness, but you love it because you love these artists. And so like, I kind of second guess my, my, my love of these films for the same reason that you do. It's that do, am I just like basing this on like my relationship with this artist and this director more than I'm actually enjoying the film itself. But I kind of had that impression of both of those films. Although Card Counter does have some really amazing stuff. Another case of being miscast. So I think if somebody other than Oscar Isaac had been in it, it might've been great, really great. Yeah. I think he was maybe the wrong person to play the lead role in the movie. I mean, I should see it at some point, but I never, I never saw the, the climate crisis one with Ethan Hawke either. That's another one that was like, Oh, I'll see that. And then just didn't ever see it. You know? Oh, you should Um, see first reformed. It's great. I know every people I trust have told me that it's actually uh, that it's actually great. So um, I will tell you, this is, this is all leading up to here's what my fear is, you know, is that I'm afraid of the idea that art is losing its ability to challenge me and expand my mind you know, I'm, I'm afraid that my disinterest in seeing a lot of these movies and unwillingness to uh, even try them out that like, I just don't believe these movies can impact me the way they're supposed to impact me. And I just don't believe that these movies that people are responding to, uh, not that I don't believe, I'm worried i just am losing the ability to be impacted by a lot of movies. There were these movies that were supposed to be crazy that I saw like Annette and Tichan that just had no impact on me whatsoever. I wasn't like, these are crazy. I was mainly just bored. I was like, that's fine. You know, they, they didn't feel crazy to me. They didn't feel challenging. They just didn't, they didn't push me any place that I haven't been before. They didn't, they didn't have any ideas in them that surprised me at all. I found nothing in either of them surprising. I certainly think there's a lot of like unpredictable qualities to both of them. And certainly in the case of Annette, a lot of ill-considered qualities to them, but I was, I was mainly say, just bored. Annette didn't have the impact on you of, well, if this isn't the worst movie of the year, <laughs> you've got something really bad to look forward to. Uh, yeah, I know. And then also there was Venom, Let There Be Carnage is like the mainstream version of that, where people are like, this is crazy. And I was mainly bored. I just wanted it to end. That was my, my main reaction to those movies is that I'm not these things that are supposed to be going out there. I, I guess I'm already out there. I guess these movies can't, I, I've been way further than all of those movies. You know, they're not, they're certainly not pushing my limits at all anymore. And I don't feel like, you know, that's no fault of those movies, but just like, you know, Tichen, uh, it's not, it's just not, it just doesn't go very far compared to where I've been. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, I it's it. not yeah. shocking to me. It's not surprising to me. And it sort of becomes pretty, it becomes pretty boilerplate by the last half hour, 
you know, and I, it's just like, it's a regular movie to me. Annette is not a regular movie. Um, Let There Be Venom is, is probably a regular movie, but it's just, again, it's like, you know, I don't know. I've just been, I've been further than these movies that are supposed to be the most far out there are going. And I don't know what that means philosophically. I don't know if that just means that I'm in a place where I need things that are on my wavelength. Um, Or maybe it's just like you get too old and you're not going to be pushed by art in that way. And it is what you're saying. You're going to want to go back to the things that matter to you and enrich your life in some way and are complex and grip you in some way. But it's strange because it's with older films, I'm still am challenged by older films and surprised by older films. Tony Stella, again, to just bring him up, recommended this Connie Chikawa movie, 10 Dark Women, that felt like I've been waiting my whole life for this movie. This is like a life fucking changing movie. Like this is the most important movie I've ever seen, you know, and I can't believe I've never heard of it before. And just this is this is this is what I've been waiting for, you know, and I don't. Yeah feel that way with new movies now granted this was also a year where a lot of my own favorites didn't make films but i mean yeah i was going to bring up that you know i know you've been challenged by something made by a japanese artist because we had our box man uh episode yeah love that obviously so i know it's not impossible for you to be moved by a new artwork that you've never experienced i guess i would say movies let let me reduce it from art but to movies you know, mm-hmm. I know, well, I, I know yeah. music doesn't affect me at all. That's <laughs> yeah. something I've known for 20 years now that I'm never going to hear an album again in my life that blows my mind. It just doesn't happen at all. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good thing to admit when you get to a certain age. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I like taking this stance, the Stella S stance of no, it's the movies that are wrong. You know, <laughs> you're not enjoying new stuff. <laughs> Because I felt it, well, I'll, I'll contradict myself in a second because I say, you know, when I watched Ride the High Country again this year. Yeah. And my thought going into Ride the High Country is always like, obviously, this is great. I'm going to enjoy watching it again because it's great. And I don't expect to have my mind fucking blown all over again, seeing it and finding new things in it every single time. And it for being so much better than I remember it being, yeah. what I consider like one of my favorite movies of all time. I mean, that's something that just, knocks you on the floor but i have to say coming out of benedetta which i went 40 minutes out of my way to go see i bought my ticket and the guy at the theater said this one's great i was like yeah he's like yeah (laughs) and i was worried because you know i don't know i'm always nervous about one of my favorite filmmakers doing a film you know after several years does he still have it is it going to be as good as his old stuff and i loved it so much that I went and found the guy after the movie, gave him a high five because I felt that great adrenaline <laughs> that you feel when you're like, that is a fucking movie, man. That is just, you know, how, why did, why would I ever, why would I ever think Verhoeven, you know, distrust him and think that he couldn't do it because he balances entertainment and deep thought art, you know, better than anybody. I mean, to say better than anybody, he, he's the only one who could do it to yeah. that extent, you know, and, getting both of those, you know, getting crashed by the waves on both sides is elating. It's totally unexpected. So coming out of it and feeling that for the first time all year, feeling that in a theater, like, wow, that was a movie that I saw, you know, it's the same thing as, you know, revisiting a great film 
and like getting bowled over by it all over again. But this time it's fresh and it's new and you just want to high five a stranger after you come out and see it. <laughs> that's the great, great feeling. So that feeling's not dead in me, I don't think, but it's only going to come up whenever Paul Verhoeven makes a movie. You know? Well, that's what, what I was thinking five too. Years. Yeah. is like, do I have to wait for Errol Morris or Fred Wiseman to, you know what I mean? Is that just, is, is Mike Lee who apparently can't get a movie made that not even Netflix will give him money. Is it just, I've just got to bide my time for them and, and get, get knocked out for those guys again. But I do, you know, I, again, it's, I also wish I could be, I've always, because I'm a negative person who dislikes almost everyone I've ever met. I just don't like people. I don't get along with people. I, I um, am very critical of movies. I try and temper my negativity because it's a bad quality I see in me, not a good quality. And sometimes I wish I could just, I should just embrace the Stella and just be like, fuck this garbage. You know what I mean? And just be un, unrepentantly confident in my negativity you know, I always, a lot of what I, we write and do, I do want to convince people. I, I want to convince people to give a movie a chance and to see the good in it. And so the, the, when I write about films, I try and explain what's interesting them about them to me, try and explain where they're coming from and where I came to with it and bring people in. When you dislike stuff, that's much harder to do. Writing interestingly about bad movies is virtually impossible, uh, especially passionately. But I would say even more than that, convincing people that a movie they thought was good is actually bad is a fool's errand. It's, it's just impossible, which is why I always appreciate that Marcus brings up all the time that my negative review of Zodiac changed his opinion on it. That's like, that's the only time this has fucking ever happened to in the history of i was the gonna world. say if, if anybody reads your piece on inglorious bastards and doesn't hate the movie no matter how they felt about it after reading it then they're hopeless so there's nothing to say to that person yes and i put a lot of time into that thing to try and make it fair and unassailable you know um but it's it's just really it's really i just don't have the confidence of I dislike it, so I'm right. I always want to see how I'm wrong about things, you know? And if somebody says, fuck you, I liked it. I'm like, uh, maybe they're right. You know what I mean? And especially knowing, because there are so much stuff that people really, really like. It's not like I'm towing the line and taking the cheap shots at, hey, did you see the new Mike Myers movie? Waka waka, you know? And that's so much, that's what I want to lead into too here to talk about a little bit is, that film discourse really, truly, I feel like part of the reason I'm not connecting with films is that film discourse is completely dead. Mm-hmm. That, and I, and I don't mean that in a, a um, sky is falling kind of way, a hyperbolic way. I mean that in a literal way where there's, l- there's literally no critics and no film sites I read anymore. I do not read modern critics at all the last one who i eventually gave up on was outlaw Vern, and even he just sort of descended into a bunch of tendencies that made him unreadable for me and i 
really feel like what site do people read? Nobody reads these sites. They can't possibly be reading these, these authors anymore. That sort of the new style of film criticism is, look, man, I just think it's worthless. I, I think it's, it's been, I feel completely alienated from the cultural conversation really and truly. I feel like it's been reduced to like social media sniping and like sort of clever, quote unquote, just a bunch of fucking unfunny people trying to be clever. That's just all it is. A bunch of a bunch of unattractive people, like spiritually unattractive people, just sort of putting that on full display at all times. I actually saw an interview with Rob Zombie recently. Uh, it was I was on the fucking Joe Rogan podcast, and Joe and Joe Rogan was talking about like you're really hated by critics. How does that make you feel? And he was like, you know, I. I, it would bother me up until I would meet the people who wrote the reviews. And then you look at them and you're like, oh, who the fuck cares what they think? And I think that that's something that social media shows you is that there's a, a virtually, I can't think of any professional critic that I don't look at and go, who the fuck cares what they think? Even people who I liked them when their work was confined to being a column in a magazine and the rest of their personality was stripped away from it. Now that I see their personalities, it's just like, these guys are fucking losers. These people are fucking losers. Their ideas are terrible. They're brutally unfunny. They're engaged in all of this social media sniping with each other over these battles I find idiotic. There's no cultural conversation. It's, it's literally worthless to me, completely and totally worthless. And, and, it, and it's, you know, just like, look at something like the conversation around don't look up. You know what I mean? That, that just like all of these assholes talking about it for weeks now and not a single interesting or, or valuable thing said. You know, there is not a single piece of the discourse that is worth that is worth more than used toilet paper. It's just, and it's been one of the dominant threads of the social media sphere. And, and it's just, it just feels like there's nothing going on in the written cultural conversation and the written criticism conversation anymore that it is dead. It doesn't exist. Maybe there's podcasts. You and I don't listen to podcasts. I guess that's where all the criticism is migrated to, but there's no uh, people whose opinions I want to hear from, you know, I'm friends with literally every writer and podcaster I like, you know, like I already talked to them about movies. So maybe that, you know, if, if Martin Kessler, I'm already talking with, so I don't have to, read his work or, or listen to his podcasts. And, you know, Marcus, I talk to all the time, uh, it, but it just feels, it really truly feels to me like there is no cultural conversation anymore, that it's completely gone. And with no cultural conversation, it's really hard to have, look, just like art dies without good criticism, mm -hmm. you know? Well, it's it's almost like it's all buried in the muck now, isn't it? Now with social media, it's almost like everybody has an opinion on everything and everyone is a critic. And you have to read everything that everyone says because even but the paid professional critics engage with everybody, you know? Yeah. You know, someone who is writing already for like big publications and has had a book published, you know, gets into it with, you know, Joe Shitbag, you know, on Twitter. Yeah, over letterboxed reviews. Yeah, exactly then, you know, it's, it's worthless. It's, it's completely not worth anybody's time. I just wish they wouldn't try and be funny 
all the time. That's really, truly, I just wish all of you people that aren't funny, just stop trying to be funny. I'm begging you, you know, like you're just, you're just not professionally funny. And I understand that a lot of criticism, especially in the modern age, there's like a like snarky humor. That's definitely like internet speak. That's definitely like shit posting type speak. That's just, just, just so cliched and so worn out and everybody feels compelled to talk in this way because it's the easiest and it gets the most engagement and all that. That's one thing that, that I feel like you constantly have to put down in yourself, uh, you know, like putting down a dog in yourself if you're on social media is getting in these dumb snark fights. And the times I've gotten drawn into them, I was like, what am I doing? This was worthless. This is worthless for everybody. And I just, I just don't think there's no writers worth reading anymore. And it's crazy because there's more people than ever writing. There's more people than ever writing. And how can this be that there's nothing worth reading anymore? And I think that it's just the way of doing business has become so infected by the social media shit. And this is, this is, this is what I'll say. One of the realizations that I had this year is, you know, I'm, I'm very on the record. And when we finally get into our top movies of the year, you'll hear about it. I hate the Scorsese versus MCU fight. I think Scorsese said something sort of factually short-sighted and idiotic. I mean, if a guy's a huge fan of George Sidney, you should know better than to be like, pop entertainment, what's that? That can't be art. You know, you're sitting out here fucking praising the, you know, Vincent Minnelli. You should know better than that. And he knows that because then when he actually gave a written statement, it was all about the economics of these films crowding out the middle class of it. And he completely changed it from these are not real cinema to uh, well, hold on. The economics is what I was trying to do, right? Like, I don't like, I don't like the circus. Who likes the circus? Yeah. But, uh, but it's, but this fight is never ending. It's unquenchable on social media. And it's been a dumb fight from the beginning. Uh, and the sides on it, both sides are immensely unlikable. Both sides are immensely, immensely unlikable. I happen to think that, you know, there's not actually a conflict between the Irishman and Thor Ragnarok. I think that there's, you know, it, it reminds me so much of being in high school and the kids being like, boy bands aren't real bands. You know, that are the, that's what the Scorsese people sound like, you know, is like, you know, Backstreet Boys isn't real music. Not like I like, not like Eminem, you know, this just like fight between these sort of towering pop culture figures. Or I listen to these punk rock records, not boy bands. That's exactly what the Scorsese people sound like to me. And what I realized very recently and why I think I'm off put by it more than anything is it's not that it's not like the people who love drive my car versus the MCU. It's people who think matrix and Dune are the best movies of the year versus the MCU. And that feels like such a completely ludicrous fight to me, but that's just like, you can't get away from this thing. What have the, what have critics been talking about for the past two years? It's, it's Scorsese versus MCU. And it's just like, it's just like, you're not going to like this, but I, and who the fuck knows, maybe this is an unfair accusation, but the stupid shit Alan Moore gets into 
You know what I mean? It just reminds me of being in college and people being like, Alan Moore's a genius. And then me reading anything by him and being like, oh my God, this man is an idiot. Get me away from this, please. He seems like exactly the type to be like superhero movies like the MCU have poisoned culture. He just seems like complete. And it's just, it's just the Alan Moore types. You know, it's just like, how is, how is everything reduced to this? Maybe I'll cut all this, but I just feel like it's the conversation has been worthless. And that's been the main thing. I think it's important that you keep this in there because I, you know, for me, looking back at the last two years of cinema and film discourse is the MCU versus Scorsese thing. You know, that's what has dominated it. It hasn't been, you know, let's, let's sit down and talk seriously about, um, you know, a mode of artist new movie or, you know, the, the uh, art house, you know, declining or digital versus here's, going to the cinema. Here's, here's been... one jokey tweet about how horny Benedetta is in 15 fucking tweets about how much I hate the MCU. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. That's what it's become. So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's discouraging, especially because the MCU people who go, you know, on that, on that, that side, or, you know, what is this, the Snyder army or whoever, Yeah, the, you know, the, the, these guys, you know, who jump up to defend these tentpole entertainments, which, you know, I'm not talking about quality. It's just, they don't need defending. They yeah. won. It's over. You know, <laughs> like, why do you feel like, you know, you need to attack a 80 year old man when you've won? <laughs> There's no, absolutely. It's, it's completely pointless. But Scorsese's also won. Like Scorsese yeah. doesn't need defending. And that's when I that's what I say when the idea is not that like they're coming out on behalf of Benedetta instead. It's actually the people who are like really want to tell you about how good Dune is. You know what I mean? That it's this fight between two slightly different modules of mainstream. The Christopher dominance. Nolan fans. Exactly. Exactly. That, that kind of thing. David Fincher type fans, you know, even somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson, like he's one too. He doesn't need defending. He's going to get, keep making movies for the next 25 years. You know, like that, that stuff isn't, isn't going anywhere. Um, if, if, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not weighing on either side i think scorsese said some something sort of factually short-sighted which is that genre and popular entertainments cannot be art they're just roller coaster pieces i think that that's dumb he backtracked on that made it a conversation about economics the conversation about economics is obviously not very interesting to me i i do know that there's more movies than ever being produced right now in a wider variety of options with greater ability than at any point in history. So any movie I want to see, I can fucking see right now. And that there's an incredible variety when I go from Shudder to Criterion Channel to HBO Max to Netflix to, you know, to Amazon Prime of new movies being made and new TV shows, that there is an incredible variety of that stuff being made as well that I don't feel like man, where did that middle class get? They are not making movies like Kramer versus Kramer anymore, you know? And it's like, you know, maybe, maybe that's true. Who the fuck knows? But I was thinking about this too, where the conversation, uh, you know, I was looking at the top streaming movies of the year, right? The top 10 stream movies across all services. And I don't, I don't know where this list, I know Netflix is very tight with their numbers. So I don't know how verifiable it is, but the 10th, 
highest viewed movie of the year. It's all what you would expect. It's a bunch of superhero movies. And then the 10th is The Kissing Booth 3, right? Have you heard of The Kissing Booth movies, John? No. I had not heard of them at all either. But I think that it's comparable to say, you know, people are like, how has the landscape changed? And it's you look at what was released in 1957 and it's like, it's a bunch of big blockbusters, family films, and then like Lay's Girls and Jailhouse Rock. And like, those are the kissing booth three of that era. I don't think you look at what movies came out in any given year at the top 10 and you're going to find some time where it was like all this amazing thought provoking art, unless you really buy into the idea that like for a stretch in the seventies, you know, that the French connection is, is somehow fundamentally, you know, different than, you know, than whatever. Um, and I don't happen to buy that way. I think the French connection is a very good entertainment that I'm that it's not Bellatar. It's not drive my car. It's not Benedetta. It's not a net, you know, it's a, it's a really enjoyable cop movie with great car chase in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I just feel like the Kissing Booth 3 is still out there just because you're not talking about it. You know, the Kissing Booth (laughs) 3 is still getting made. There's the Kissing Booth series that were popular enough to make three of them. You know, there's still these movies getting made and and put out there. And just because you don't like it and don't care about it and don't think of it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist anymore. You know? Damn it, Funderburg. This is what I was talking about. I Now I have to go see Kissing Booth 3 because I need to put it on my list. <laughs> I got my anxiety up all over again. Well, right it's back where too, I started. To, to think about how much fucking talking about movies there is on social media and how, you know, just how all day, every day, the, the, the blue checks are just trying to weigh in on everything. And you, and you will not hear the Kissing Booth 3 mentioned ever (laughs) you know just how much talk there is about movies and how if something isn't the target you know but or is that is the kissing booth three is that better or worse than an mcu movie i'm willing to bet it's a terrible piece of shit and that it's actually better to have shang chi and spider-man far from home or better movies i'm very very much willing to bet that you know that it is just disposable fluff, but it hasn't been appropriately assigned to target for whatever reason. I think also because its audience is probably uh, teenage girls and young women that like that's, you know, you don't want to be kicking that target either. I think that there's something about the perceived audience for MCU movies. And again, like this is something I try and explore when I talk to people who are film brain poisoned, film Twitter poisoned, that like, you know, my dad, who is a brilliant chemical engineer, and my sister, who is a PhD computer engineer, who teaches at, or up until recently, when she decided to switch jobs, taught, was a college professor speaking in her second language in Korea, right? Sociology professor, John Balzarini, a tenured professor. These people have love the MCU movies, right? Regular people who are smarter than you dipshit on the internet, you know, like you're some guy who writes for rogerebert.com. My sister is smarter than you and more successful than you by every measure. If you met her, you would admit this. She likes the MCU and gets something out of it. 
you know? And I think that like, if you don't have your film Twitter poisoned brain, you could see regular people like these movies and get a lot out of them. And they're intelligent people too. The smart people, you know, like them, you know, it's not just dumb crap for morons. It's really not when movies get that big, you know? And I, yeah. I think that there's a condescension to it that I find repellent, you know? And, and those people may or may not like Scorsese movies. Most of them do, you know, you know. Yeah. Well, that's another thing, the generalization to say, you know, I hate, well, you hate all the MCU movies. They're all the same. You hate all Scorsese movies. They're all the same. Yeah, exactly. There's certainly Scorsese movies I love and some I do not like He makes all. mafia movies. That's <laughs> what he does. He's the mafia guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, almost every year there's a, there's a Marvel movie that I like a lot when I don't like it all. yeah i I, yeah the idea that they're indistinguishable from each other i also find very strange and i think also part of the reason why i I sort of have a knee-jerk reaction to the marvel movie stuff is the the marvel machine sought out directors that i felt were doing interesting work before them taika watiti peyton reed james gunn these are directors who've made films that i've really really liked and admired before they went into the mcu um and you know certainly sam raimi and chloe zhao that they they go after interesting directors deliberately and you can talk about how much autonomy they have or do or do not i think in some of these directors you can feel some personality some of them you can't you know but there's a version of the mcu that's just fucking harry potter where they're just grabbing journeyman directors to make completely faceless, voiceless entertainments, you know, sort of a, to what the 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 Mar, uh, Star Wars movies are to a certain extent, you know, where you're kind of grabbing these sort of personality free directors and, and, and having them do this stuff. And I, it just feels like of all of, if this is the worst case scenario, this is fucking great. <laughs> you know and it and it does feel a little like you know i think this will lead into our favorites of the year where we get into them i only have three movies i want to talk about and even that is sort of tempered but the only movie i saw this year that i loved and i've watched it five times already is james gunn's the suicide squad this is the only movie i've seen this year that I loved and you've you've seen it and we have we discussed it at all I feel like you and I have been James Gunn super fans for a very long time and we haven't talked about this yeah we were Gunn super fans before he did anything good we loved him because he was uh, involved with trauma because he ghost wrote Lloyd Kaufman's excellent book uh and we were like well we certainly don't like the Scooby-Doo movies you know yeah Dawn Um, of the Dead is fine yeah and when really Sarah Polly show there when Slither came out, it was like, finally, here he is doing something that's 100% him. And ever since then, I've loved everything he's done. Did you... Including The Suicide Squad. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a funny... that That's a movie, too, that I feel like people are just really intent on being hard on it. And if you stop and go, like... Just some of the imagery it provided, you know, just the, the Harley Quinn diving into a giant 
amniotic sac with a javelin, which then fills up with rats is such a bizarre image. It's such a, it's an image you dream of seeing in a Frank Hennen Lauder movie. You know, it's just an image you dream of getting to. And the movie is full of these sort of strange ideas and images that, that you dream of seeing in movies, you know, and strange ideas. And just, it's a movie that's all of the things I like in a movie. It's violent and funny and unpredictable and, and genuinely strange, a genuinely strange movie. And it's easy to take for granted how strange it is and how it aspires to beauty and strangeness. It's a movie that actually aspires to quite a bit without sacrificing any of the traditional, predictable Hollywood entertainment type satisfactions on top of it. And I think that that's like, this is a movie that I really, really like. And uh, can I say, oh, movies don't surprise me anymore. Did this movie surprise me? Probably, I mean, probably not. I mean, who the hell knows what that means? It, it certainly was an electrifying, lively experience for me. It's a movie that made me wake up and feel good, you know, like that popped, popped into it. And I feel like so much of the reaction to it was still just caught up in this like real movies versus comic book movies fight. And you would read these, these critical reactions that were like the condescending dismissive snark about it. And it's like, I don't think, I don't think you believe in anything. I don't know. This was just a movie that was really easy for me to get a huge amount out of. It's just like you said, it's the, it's exactly what you would want for, from giving a madman $50 million to make a movie, a tentpole movie. You know, there's so much just fun and poetic and unexpected things that happened in this film. And uh, I'm so happy that I got to see it in the theater. And, you know, afterwards when I, my wife watched it and she's like, yeah, it was all right. Cause she watched it on, on HBO max or whatever. And I said, you didn't really see it. You know, it's, I, if you'd see it in the theater, that's where you got to, that's where you got to see that I dive have, into have, the, uh, into the eyeball. I've only seen it at home on the HBO. Max. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> it also has, you know, it's he's a very underrated um, actor's director. I think the best performance I saw all year was Daniela Melichiar as yeah. Ratcatcher 2. I think that that was the most interesting performance I saw all year long. It reminds me of of great strange performances too that have have a complexity to them was was the the most complicated character you know on a certain level it's probably insulting to certain other performances because she has so much less to do she doesn't have to carry a film but it was definitely my favorite it's the one that impacted me the most i think it's i think it's setting that bar for himself of can I make an audience love Polka Dot Man and Ratcatcher 2 as much as they love, you know, Batman, you know, is that's a really difficult thing to do and that he pulls it off. I mean, obviously we know he's able to because he did that with Guardians of the Galaxy where he made Star-Lord as popular as, you know, uh, Iron Man and Captain America, you know? So he's obviously capable of doing that. But I think it, it is interesting to take a basically impossible character like King Shark, you know, and make him into an interesting character, you know, and a lot of that is Stallone's performance too, which I think is phenomenally good, you know, just one of the great uh, character actor performances of the year as well. 
And I know he's been very polite. And of course, Gunn, you know, is one of the first ones to jump up when Scorsese says he had his quote, you know, to say, yeah. that's not fair for you to say that, you know? Yeah. Uh, so of course he got buried for that. Like everyone was dogpiling on him over that comment, but he, he, I know he's been very polite about, you know, the original Suicide Squad movie by David Ayers and say, no, that was a good movie too. And, you know, nothing against that movie, but he clearly in the first five minutes of the film where he has this B squad show up and get yeah. annihilated is like, fuck that shit. Like, I'm going to do something interesting with this concept. I'm going to take these characters and do something fun. I'm going to merge uh, the Suicide Squad behind enemy line movie with uh, dance film and comedy and <laughs> just everything you can think of under the sun. And he just throws everything in there and does something that makes you smile the entire time. Well, Even it's when also it's interesting. The darkest of violence and comedy. You just you're having such a great time. It, you mentioned the opening where in the Airs movie that in five minutes he re-etches Captain Boomerang to a point where you're like, ah, oh, I can't believe he killed Captain Boomerang. You know, <laughs> where it's like it's it's incredible how quickly he draws these characters. And it's funny, the I, I couldn't I, believe they killed Captain Boomerang. And then afterwards I looked it up, it's like, oh, it was Jack Courtney playing him again. I didn't even know <laughs> it's the character that you care about, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. I, I read some tweet that was making fun of the movie for using the, um, the Johnny Cash song in the opening scene. And some, you know, fucking some guy that if you're Rob Zombie and me, you're like, well, who the hell cares what this fucking guy thinks? If you meet, I promise you, if you meet any of these people in person, you will no longer care what they think about anything just be around them for five minutes and you'll be like oh who cares um literally think of your favorite blue check critic spend 30 seconds around them you will no longer give a shit what they think about anything but this person was like making fun of it it's like oh because it takes place in a prison so he used the song from the prison it's like well actually that's a really shrewd song to use because yes it is about i killed a man to watch him die so I'm in prison. So it's, you know, uh, the, 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 the blue song, but it's also Johnny Cash throughout his career, especially uh, as he heads later in his career, risks becoming a novelty artist. He creates more and more sort of novelty act songs that are on the verge of being self-parody that are being jokes. And in fact, that song is a bit of a joke song in and of itself. It's not meant to be taken deathly seriously. It's meant to be a bit of a game and a bit of a joke in and of itself and be right on the border of novelty. But at the same time, try and mine something real out of it and stay just right on the right edge of novelty song and that's what the movie's trying to do it's trying to stand on the johnny cash side of novelty song and the only way you can't see that and why it's a perfect tone setter is if you're some fucking music critic who's like johnny cash changed the face of music forever he was the original outlaw level and not like this is a guy whose career descended into like virtually Ray Stevens-esque novelty bullshit at a certain point before it was resurrected, that he was a guy who wrote funny songs a lot of the time, and that most of his hits were jokey kind of songs that aspired to something a little more beyond that. You know, A Boy Named Sue is like a joke song, you know? Written by Shel Silverstein. <laughs> exactly. And so setting that tone of this is going to be about murder and violence in prison, but it's also going to be fun and funny. You need a song like that. And that's literally the best song to set the tone. And I feel like that's what I mean when I say like the discourse and the cultural conversation is completely worthless and dead is you just have like 
this snarky tweet and it gets like whatever, however many likes, who knows, 200, 5,000. I don't fucking know what kind of response it gets to it. Certainly these voices are also incredibly marginal that like getting a couple thousand likes on a tweet is going to be like the highlight of the year or whatever, you know, that it's just like completely meaningless and speaking to such a small audience too on top of it. And that's all you have left, you know, and, and you're not going to read a review that goes into any kind of depth about the music selections on that movie, which I think there's, it's extremely variable. I think one of James Gunn's worst qualities is his taste in music ultimately. And there's certainly selections on the soundtrack in that film that I'm like, ooh, that's a whiff. You know, like <laughs> I'm, I'm not into that at all. But to sort of look at this with any kind of thoughtfulness, it's just impossible. It's just gonna be like the lowest hanging fruit. New superhero movie, let me make fun of it. Uh, against superhero movies in favor of Johnny Cash. Like what could be lower hanging, play into the cheap seats, like everybody look at me, you know, like, hey, you like cool stuff. You're a cool dude, me too. Kind of like nonsense, like loser talk, like fucking loser talk, you know? Yeah. That's just like, that's that's all you get anymore, you know? Yeah. It, especially when you look at some of the other films that are made this year. I mean, for me, a big thing about filmmaking and the approach to filmmaking these days is that if your film is going to be important, it has to be humorless. Yeah. It has to be dark, <laughs> visually dark and, you know, philosophically <laughs> dark. It has to have minimalist acting, long, long shots of silence and nothing interesting happening. And I'm so tired of that boring, boring kind of self-important filmmaking. I'm sick of it. I don't want to see that anymore. To me, it's the least challenging thing for an artist or for an audience member to have to sit through. Long and take, awkward pause cinema is the easiest thing to do in the world. It's incredibly it's easy to make every like that. other movie this, this now. I mean, that's just the approach. So give me Suicide Squad where he does things visually that are mesmerizing, where there's brightness and clever jokes and still lots of emotion, you know, it's still like characters that you actually are invested in and care about their fates. Give me something that's alive, like Suicide, the Suicide Squad is alive. Yeah. Don't show me this dour, completely sullen stuff that just i don't care i don't care the house of Trades gets overthrown on arrakis i don't <laughs> well that stuff i mean dune is like that's the kind of thing where i feel like i don't even want to talk about movies i dislike i'm not going to convince anybody to dislike dune you know i'm yeah. not going to have anything do do i think that movie is just like impossible i think it's important, <laughs> I think it's important to say because i love dune i love the books I love the story. I love the characters. And for me, the reason, how could an adaptation of Dune not work? And the answer is, it's a terrible approach to that story and those characters. You know, one that just completely drags me out of the film. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, like, I'm, I, I could barely make it all the way through. I'm just not. That's my reaction to so much stuff I, I don't like, though, now is like, it's just, it's not for me. You know, and I've and I've been very back and forth because I feel like that's the most fair thing to say 
most of the time is like, this is not for me. But something this year I've really been caught up in the like, isn't, aren't negative reviews necessary? Isn't there something important about thoughtfully negative reviews? Not just like jokey letterboxed, I hated this movie so much I punched a cop kind of, you know, kind of whateverness. Um, that's basically, uh, you know, or, or the kind of milk toast capsule reviewer style. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I don't want to get into it with people about Dune is my main reaction is that like, maybe I'm just not, if I ever was, and I never, certainly never thought of myself this way. Maybe the critical impulse inside me is just gone now. Maybe I'm not a critical writer or thinker anymore. Maybe that's just not the role I want to have in life in the world, <laughs> you know, uh, because I certainly like it doesn't feel worth it to me to develop and articulate my critique of Dune. My, my reaction is I found it punishingly boring and almost hilarious that it's like a third of a movie and all prelude and um and that's it you know like that's it your movie bored me i don't it like felt, it. It, it, felt, <laughs> it felt small you know giant spaceships you know coming down to the atmosphere thousands of people getting off the spaceship giant planets and worms and it was like it felt small paul verhoven takes two characters in a room and it feels huge it feels epic yeah that's just I what's mean, lacking i don't know i don't know i mean it's just again it's like the same thing with the matrix movie where it's like i just i don't care to develop a critique of this i didn't like it it's not for me you know like and not even like a condescending like well i'm glad you got something out of it just like i you know like let let me mentally let this dissolve from my mind and be gone forever let me forget dune you know, just like, let me forget it and have it be gone from my Won't consciousness forever, yeah. you know? Well, it will, because that's all people talk about. You just get, <laughs> if you're trying to be engaged with what's happening in the world, it's just, you either get the like Hong Sang Su people or the, the Dune people, you know, like, and I think they're both equally like got nothing to do with me. You know, I, I, I just, if you, if you genuinely think, that Hong Sang-soo is one of the greatest filmmakers in the world. You're, you're just a total alien to me. Uh, not total alien. You just got nothing to do with me. Dune's got nothing to do with me. Let these things dissolve from my mind. Like, you know, a drop of water on a sugar cube, you know, like that's, that's the only, you know, there's no, there's no conversation to be had. There's nothing I get out of talking about these movies anymore. Dissolve like the sands of Arrakis through your fingers. <laughs> ah, the sands of Arrakis. So we have a unanimous. This is the Pink Smoke's official unanimous best movie of the year is The Suicide Squad. I love The Suicide Squad. I would not be averse to making that the consensus best. Although movie of the year. I haven't seen Benedetta, I will also accept Benedetta as our consensus best movie of the year without having sight unseen. I can't imagine you would be disappointed. So. So what um, are what else do you have? I have two more. How many do you have to talk about? I could talk about as many or little as possible. I mean, uh, I mean, I've got three certainly. I, I want to talk about one that is not a movie, or at least it's not your traditional. <laughs> I know where you you're know, going with this. <laughs> your traditional thought of a movie. 
I don't know if you are. It's this is an eight hour thing, <laughs> political essay made on you put on YouTube. That's where I watched it. So again, you know, I'm sitting here extolling, you know, the theater experience and everything. And I'm like, the best movie <laughs> I saw was on YouTube. Uh, it's Adam Curtis's new film, Can't Get You Out of My Head, which is, I, I got turned on to Curtis by our friend M2 McGant, who is one of the very few people these days who I defer to in almost everything in terms of taste. You know, if, if M2 May says it's interesting, it's It'll at least be, be interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah and if sure. he says it's not interesting, I know I'm going to be on the wavelength. Oh yeah, him. no, he more than anything. Although he's I, like an anti-comic book movie guy, so. Well, you know, everyone has something, but I, I think you know if he, I, I think I saw Candyman before I talked to him about it, but I definitely you know, I was like, if him too, may says Candyman is garbage, you know, it's garbage. <laughs> you know, that's that's the yeah. one person I want to hear about on on the new Candyman movie. Um, but can't get you in my head is about the illusion of individual of individualism. It's kind of a, the more things change, the more they stay the same in terms of like how advancements of science and technology and art are all just par for the course and how living in an age of individualism, where each of us critique those in power, fail to realize that the failure is of the people, you know, that we always feel this kind of power in culture. That, you know, that we think that, you know, these advancements in culture mean something and they don't, yeah. you know, that these little things are created, like these stories are created more or less to keep the status quo and how things don't change, you know, uh, and it's a huge, huge thing to digest. I mean, like I said, it's eight hours. It goes back and forth in its topics. It is this rich, expansive thing that you just kind of get lost in. Uh, you know, it deals with China, Ethiopia in the 80s, the black political movements uh, in America, it just jumps back and forth between everything. And there's no real connection to them other than this idea that, you know, revolutions don't work. You know, <laughs> things never change because we all become complicit in this and content with this, these, these small little stories that we tell ourselves when nothing is actually uh, changing for the better. And it's interesting from the beginning to the end. I mean, everything is every time he you know goes into a new discourse, it's interesting. It's fascinating for its own reason. And then the connection at the end makes it that more interesting. So this is the kind of thing that I usually get into. You know, this is the kind of thing that I usually dig, but uh, it's the kind of thing that opens my eyes and makes me think like, wow, this is the kind of thing I should have been watching over the last 10 years. And uh, makes me want to kind of delve into things like that, where it's non-traditional storytelling it's not leanne kubitz called it the best documentary of the year i don't even know if it's documentary i wouldn't call it a documentary i wouldn't call it a narrative i don't know what the hell it is but i know it's uh completely fascinating so i absolutely loved it and would highly recommend it to anybody uh in general i'm an adam curtis fan power of nightmares is one of my favorite i did not watch this one i didn't see this one you know he's a weird he's a weird figure where he's in the political world and he's just one of those guys who fell out of favor randomly like that you know he's not the right kind of leftist anymore you know just how all of that is and again that's maybe again the the social media poisoning where it's just uh, people have actually heard of him and have negative opinions about him you know and out in the real world people don't even fucking know who adam curtis is if you ask sure i don't know anything to do with the fact that this one is critical of the left in a big way you know it's saying how completely powerless the left is and changing anything 
Yes, he's been fairly critical uh, of the left from a left-oriented uh, point of view, I think, for, for a long time. And he's definitely an interesting filmmaker. It's definitely one I'd, I'd love to see and, and sit and watch. But I've, I'm so totally withdrawn from politics and so totally pulled back from any Well, you know, I'm as apolitical yeah. as they come. So yeah. for me to be moved this much by a political film is pretty, pretty significant. Yeah, I should definitely check it out. You know, the one you do, you know, the one when you said it's not really a movie necessarily what my next pick is. Can you guess what that's yes. going to be? Which is, one I love too. Yeah. yeah, which is Village Detective, a song cycle. It's by the great Bill Morrison, who's a, a found footage sort of semi-documentary filmmaker. Uh, he mainly takes like old rotted footage. He his, I think his first feature is Decasia, which is just finding like chemical rot, warped old movies and cutting them together. He made one of my very favorite films from a few years ago. I guess it's, is it 2019 Dawson City Frozen Time, where there was a bunch of old film reels discovered uh, up in the uh, in Dawson City, up in the Yukon Gold Rush territory. Uh, that had been sort of weather damaged and he, he made a, he cuts them together and make, makes movies out of them. He did that again. There was an Icelandic fishing vessel, which found a uh, print on the bottom of the ocean that it drawed and dredged up uh, of an old 1969 Soviet era movie. And uh, Morrison uses this as a, as a way to sort of um, look at its star uh, and look at the, the, where the film came from, the history of the star and who he is and do his thing of beautifully hypnotically cutting together damaged footage, sort of damaged and, and celluloid and broken celluloid. And that's the reason you watch a Bill Morrison movie is uh, outside of the little like sort of documentary ish segments there. It's just, they're gorgeous to look at. Um, it, this movie is like my other movie. I liked uh, this year, and maybe one of the reasons I'm not so passionate, it's it's good, but it's more of the same for Morrison and not as good as the best stuff he's done. You know what I mean? And so it's it's uh, um, it's it's like it's great. Watch it. I really like it. But don't don't go into it um, thinking it's going to be the miners him. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like it's... It definitely has like a B movie to Dawson City kind of feel to it. Uh, although I will say when I had that feeling going into it, like a, when it kind of started everything, I appreciated it more and more as it went on. And it's a short film. It's yeah. you know, 75, 80 minutes, something like that. But I think what's most striking about it is that the film itself, The Village Detective, is just this movie about like a guy whose accordion gets stolen. You know, like it's not yeah. like some great work of cinema that's been discovered i mean you can see this movie you know it's not lost this is just a print that he that they dredged up uh from the depths of the ocean but it feels so important in this context it's amazing how it feels like the most important thing ever as you're yeah. watching you know morrison's you know uh the, the, just the the graininess and the, the dirtiness and everything that's been mixed in there and how he relates it to things like the history of russia and rasputin and you know the political climate and things like that it just makes it like it makes you appreciate a movie that should be nothing yeah you know it's this beautiful way of like taking this film and turning it into something extraordinary and so you and like you said this that hypnotic feel you just you know get more and more into it and while at the beginning you're like i don't really care about the story yeah by the end you're like 
So who took the accordion? Like, I got to know. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> and it's it is, amazing and it's how like, I get you to care about it. It's, it's a popular entertainment too. It's not like, um, it's not like they found some lost movie. You know right. what I mean? The way a lot of the, the Dawson city footage is like kind of newsreel type stuff. That's like, wow, this is an incredible find. This is like a movie that I'm sure there were fucking other prints of that weren't yeah, found on exactly. the bottom of the ocean. No, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, it's good. I don't know why I'm being, being hard on it in, in some way, but it's, you know, it's, if, if I'm listing it as one of the only three movies of the year I liked, I guess I'm not being too hard on it. Um, but he's just, he's, he's completely up my alley. I could just watch anything he does, you know, if it's in this, the same style, I can just watch it forever. I think, I think he's really, the best in the world at a certain kind of thing. And he just does an incredible job with it. But I, I love that kind of, um, you know, I love looking at damaged celluloid. I love Peggy Awash. I love stuff like that. So it's, it's, uh, you know, Barbara Hammer's Sanctus. I love, I can watch beat up footage all goddamn day. So this is a movie that's just so completely up my alley in a way that's, uh, that that like there's no denying i was gonna like this one yeah no it's fantastic and it's definitely not getting brought up by people on the year-end list i mean you know it's i feel like even uh, dawson city didn't get brought up nearly as much as it should have which is crazy because dawson city is like dawson city feels like monumental you watch yeah. dawson city and you're like whoa this is fucking this is like a hundred years from now people are still going to be watching this movie you know absolutely and uh and you're right that it wasn't i think it's just because people don't know what to do with experimental cinema still i think they still sort of look at it and just it's not a real movie you know what i mean that it's not it doesn't have two you know young two people in their late 20s early 30s in a long shot that lasts three and a half minutes in which they have awkward dialogue about their feelings and emotions and relationship i think people right. don't know what, don't know what to do with it awkward pauses as they slowly reveal their character through their dialogue while they just you know it's like <laughs> them sitting in a car the abbas karastami disease as i call it um that's not fair karastami is not the absolute worst with that um what is your next selection john so i guess I would say in the tradition of the Suicide Squad, where it's just good time at the movies, you know, but, you know, that is kind of not giving it enough credit because it's hard to create a good time at the movies. You know, we took Sam Raimi for granted for so long. Yeah. Because we didn't know. John, you and I never did. No, we did as a culture. Because but until he was gone, we didn't know what wasn't there. You know, we didn't know what was what we lost. And, you know, that is just, you know, the kind of soul of an artist, the heart, the technical expertise that goes into making like a truly fun, entertaining, smart, and satisfying movie experience. And so this year there was the Suicide Squad and the other one, because I always love to just go in to see, you know, a new horror movie that... I have no assumptions about, you know, that I don't really, haven't really heard anything. And just, Hey, it's a horror movie. I'll go see it. You know, it might be fun. Uh, it's not malignant as many people might guess. It is the night house, which okay. was such a good fucking movie directed by uh, David Bruckner. Uh, fantastic 
lead performance by Rebecca Hall, this kind of, in a lot of ways, standard kind of uh, haunted house slash grief horror movie that just kind of adds all these really interesting layers and it's just, just draws you in and keeps you there the whole time. I have to mention that, you know, our friend Patrick Horvath, who joined us to talk about Dario Argento last season, uh, worked on this film. He was the entity effects, you know, editor and the entities of this film are what make it so compelling because there's just so many creative decisions on how to show this malignant spirit and the, you know, the, the weird things that are going on, this, these surreal visuals that on top of Rebecca Hall's fantastically performance that just, you know, keeps you in the film the entire time. There's just a new surprise every single scene. And it's was, I just came out of it thinking like, man, what a fun fucking movie. You know, how much did I love that? And I, I feel like I need to bring it up now, even because I don't know if it's a great movie necessarily, but it's one that definitely nobody was talking about as being like, you know, a really good one and a really fun one. And it was, it was one that people should have mentioned more this year. Yeah. It's, I feel like I have to uh, recuse myself from talking about this one because not only, you know, I'm we friendly with Patrick Horvath is that like, I also made a movie with Patrick Horvath where he was the, the, uh, uh, one of the lead animators on it this year. So I feel like I, I agree with you, John. And I also agree that his work makes this movie, which I feel like, well, let me not wade into any of the, any of that stuff that I don't actually know about where it's uh, it's, I have to recuse myself. I watch it and I'm like, man, that's fucking great that my friend made this movie, you know, like, which <laughs> sure. is a, a reaction that I rarely have. Normally when I watch one of my friend's movies, I'm like, I hope we don't have to talk about this in depth. That's my main, main reaction is, you know, I hope every, every podcast I hope episode, you think, geez, I hope Manfred doesn't come. <laughs> I hope they're happy. Rising tide lifts all boats. I hope everybody's successful in life. And I just wish everyone joy. Um, that's a, that's a good pick. I don't know if I would have thought of it otherwise again that's one of those where it's like you know just because i i spent months working with patrick on this thing you know and i'm hearing about all that because he also did the storyboards bruckner's next movie is hellraiser remake and patrick did all the storyboards for that so i'm sort of hearing like inside the sausage factory stuff all the time so i recuse myself from talking about the night house (laughs) and that's why i thought i should step up and talk about it one of us had to do it (laughs) I think that's completely reasonable. Um, my, uh, I think so far, like I'm, I think that this can be our combined agreeing list, even though I haven't seen all of the movies uh, on yours. The the next one, this is the only other one I got that I want to talk about, is um, Bergman Island, uh, mm-hmm. which is the the new Mia Hansen love movie. Uh, I had sort of, um, it's weird. I had this is embarrassing to say. After uh, the um, uh, Maya, I was like, I gave up on her. Maya was so bad. I was like, I guess she's not as good of a director as I thought she is. And uh, she has those, but she has those three movies, right? Things to Come, Goodbye, First Love, Father of My Children. Uh, And they are phenomenal. They are as, as, I like those three movies a huge amount I really think they that they announced her as a really spectacular director. And then I disliked Maya so much 
I was like, I guess that stuff was a fluke somehow. Um, she, her career has been such like a low flying kind of glider, you know, kind of across the horizon that when it crashes, you're like, oh, that's it. It's done. You know, you, you thought like maybe that glider will like catch a wind and, you know, shoot yeah. up. And so when it hits the ground, you're like, oh, they can't get it up again. You know, that's it. I felt the same way about Myra. Yeah. And um, Bergman Island is not as good as those three. I'll say right up front. Did you see it? I did. Yeah. But it's interesting. It's an interesting movie. And it's an interesting movie in a way that is like maybe not the glider glowing up, but it's her doing something different than what she's done before. It's about a, a couple that goes to Ingmar Bergman's island pharaoh where he lived and worked and, and created a, a lot of his films uh, and they're in residency there they're artists in residency and uh they're working on a script uh that then sort of gets folded in um into the film as sort of an alternate pseudo reality that also takes place uh on on the same island and it's um it's good i again it's like village detective where it's like it's good but not as good as their best, but still good enough that it's like, this is a good movie. This is worth your time. This is worth seeing. Uh, I like the performances in it a lot, which is also one of those things that's sort of variable. You worry when a director steps out of their native language, how it's going to go, you know? So um, it, it's, uh, it's good. I would say that this is a good movie and it's good to see her stretch her wings in some way and try something different and step outside of herself and not, and just like you're saying, it's good to see that the, that the glider is not grounded, that it wasn't just, nope, that's all she had in her. This is over, which is yeah. how Maya felt to me. Like I was really like, I'm done with her in a way that now looking back is insane. And I don't think that this movie is as good as, as things to come or goodbye first love. Um, but it's interesting and it's worthwhile. And I like that she tried to be, something other than what she's been before yeah i dislike maya so much that i can't even remember its title correctly and also <laughs> it would it took bergman island getting all the notice that it did for me to even want to see it you know be, be curious about it um the main thing i think i took away from it is like how much of this is real this bergman disneyland you know is the bergman safari a real thing i gotta know <laughs> you know <laughs> Because it's hilarious one way or another, you know, and I think that you and I have both kind of experienced enough of like the blind worship of an artist, you know, or like a, a festival where like everyone loves one thing so much and everyone, that's all they want to talk about. And people are just interminable about, oh, I got to talk about this movie and that movie. And I also did walk away from this movie thinking, oh, is Sarah Band good? Should I see that? I, didn't, <laughs> I think that was one of the good ones. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> But uh, I love that. I love that she creates this kind of atmosphere. And I, uh, and I, I will say the biggest surprise for me is I'm not a big Mia uh, Wasikowska fan at all. Yeah. I usually think she, in fact, ruins movies. Yeah. I liked her in this one. I, this is the first time I really thought she was very good. And I really thought she was good in the movie within the movie. Yes. And there's something, it's strange because she feels to me more herself than she's ever been in this movie mm. and i'm like mm -hmm. you i don't like her normally and this movie feels like she's just being what she should be somehow it feels like in other movies i feel like she tries to act too much rather than embracing her star persona 
because I think she's more of a movie star than an actress, right? And I think that in this movie, she does sort of embrace what her star persona would sh- should be. And maybe that's because of the nature of what she's playing in the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it works out really well for her, you know? It and and I agree with you that she's a, she's a chronic movie ruiner. There's, there's no question about it. And she's also one of those, those Juno Temple types that's like, who is this person famous to? That they can get movie like that. We got a marquee name, this actress that nobody gives a shit about demonstrably, you know, and it just goes on for years and years, just like she gets, I guess, you know, she had her blockbuster hit and that's, that's it. You're just famous for the rest of your life now. Um, And, but she's good in this. She is good. She is. And, And I agree with you. This is not a great movie, but it's a very, very pleasant film that I like a lot. Um, I kind of, for that reason, group it with The Hand of God, the Sorrentino movie from this year. Yeah. Which uh, people are going nuts over. Yeah. And Sorrentino, again, like Mia Wasikowska, <laughs> I'm like, ah, it's not my thing. You know, he's like yeah. this, you know, modern Fellini. Ah, I, don't, I don't dig it. It's not my kind, not my style. Don't it's dig fine. him at it's, all. It's fine. It's, it's good. You know, I can see that there's talent there. It's just not my style. It's not my, it's not my, not my, not my bag. Uh, and Hand of God has enough you know, really good and interesting moments that like I enjoyed watching it. Even though at the end of it, I was like, oh, it's not not great. But, you uh, know, it had its merits. I had not even considered seeing it because it is uh, uh, Sorrentino uh, until you said this just now. So I will I will check it out, John. Yeah, yeah. It's not worth, it's not worthless. I will say that much <laughs> about it. Um, interesting. Very interesting. So that's uh, that's not on your list, though, of one of the greats of the year, one of your favorites oh, no, of the year. No, no, I say I'm saving I saved my last one here because it's my like Bergman Island. It's my one that is on everybody's list. It's popping up quite a lot. A lot of people are talking about it. And I think it's good that people are talking about this one. It's obviously this year was the house of Hamaguchi, right? He had his two big films, yeah. Drive My Car. And the other one is Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. He also co-wrote the uh, uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie, Wife of a Spy, which um is good also yeah not great and, and you know i'm you know kiyoshi kurosawa i think is one of the most talented filmmakers working for the last 20 30 years so yeah. i am much more hard on him than i would be on normal filmmakers yeah so if he makes a movie that's just fine not great i'm a little bit harsher on it than i should be yeah, Wife yeah. Of the spy is perfectly good it's just not you know in the pantheon in my opinion but very very good and i would recommend it but uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy by Hamaguchi is a, an anthology film of three different stories, two hour film. Unlike I haven't seen, I should mention I haven't seen Drive My Car, which is three or four hours long, right? It's a nice long one. Yeah, okay. It is. It is three it's hours long. long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's what prevented me from seeing it. Not because I don't like long movies, I just literally did not have time to see it. Uh, and Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy at the same time because they're at the same theater. But uh, so I chose Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. It's a great film. I think he's a very talented filmmaker. He definitely has like an apprentice kind of, you know, aura about him. He, he falls somewhere between Kurosawa and uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa and Koreeda. He clearly is very influenced by them. And there are not two filmmakers that it would be better to be influenced by yeah. than those two uh, masters, obviously. And uh, so this is a film that, you know, is very simple in its story arc. It's two or three characters in each story. It feels like reading a great short story uh, collection and it's very well, they're very well made and they're very well written uh, by Hamaguchi. So 
I really don't know much more I can say about it without kind of giving stuff away, which I wouldn't want to because these are discovery kind of stories where you like kind of learn more about the characters as you go into it. But uh, it's it's great because you don't see this kind of confidence in a filmmaker without being show-offy, without, you know, a lot of big moments. Like I said before, you know, where like a, uh, two characters in a room can feel epic if the filmmaker knows what he's doing. And each story has that kind of power to it so um hamaguchi is it's funny because i think of him like well here's the like the film by a new director that i like this year even though he's our age and he's been making films for several years at this yeah. point so new to me more than anything i mean i, I like Tosaka one and two just fine and this one makes me think like oh i like i actually genuinely like this filmmaker a lot of course i haven't seen the other one he made but this one is very good well, I'm I'm flipped with you. I saw Drive My Car, but not that one. And Drive My Car, I didn't I didn't connect with. I thought it was, mm-hmm. I thought it was too, um, to talk about. But it's got some similarities to Bergman Island, uh, in some ways, and just its approach to like art and art making. I thought it was too cutesy. I, I find that with a lot of, uh, it's based on a Murakami, uh, mm-hmm. and right. I find a lot of Murakami's work to be too cutesy, um. And I mean that in a way of like overtly intellectual game playing, you know, and uh, and I, I just find that kind of stuff, you know, like too cerebral, too studied cerebral and controlled cerebral to be cutesy. I find it to be like cutesy stuff. Um, and I I didn't I just didn't connect with it at all. And I had seen it in the context of people telling me this is one of the best movies of the year. And um and it just was, it was fine. I don't have any well-developed thoughts about it, except that like, didn't do it for me. You know, maybe, maybe the other one would be more up, up my alley, but it just, you know. I might've sensed some of that wootsy, stuff. Do, do the yeah, I, I might've sensed some of that stuff coming off that one. And that might've been why I chose Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy over it. Yeah. Um, but Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, I can't just, I can't shorten it to just Wheel of Fortune because that's confusing, yeah. but it's it's smart it's funny and it draws you in in a way that i like in films so i would yeah, yeah definitely yeah it's, it's not it, it's, it's it's not too cute for sure what i what i would say is is that you telling me that hamaguchi made a really good movie does not surprise me is what i would say about it is that okay. that my my reaction to it um was more like a sincere this is not for me then i think this is bad leave me alone i don't want to have to talk to you about it you know yeah. which is definitely like my my reaction to the matrix is not this is not for me leave me alone that this is more like this isn't this was just it didn't do it for me you know but if you told me that um and i can see i wouldn't i didn't realize he had written the 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 uh, kiyoshi kurosawa film because i just wasn't paying that much attention this year um I can see the connections between them. It seems pretty, pretty clear. I think that comparing this movie um, to uh, certain um, Kiyoshi Kurosawa movies to something like Tokyo Sonata feels mm-hmm. reasonable, you know, yeah. that it, that it feels like I can see their, their sort of uh, connections in that way. Yeah. This definitely has bright future in it. Yeah. It's got a lot of the kind of, less less out there Kurosawa movies yeah in its blood for sure excellent well that's it so my list and then we will get to are we still going to do this at the end did we have enough to do it 
uh, <laughs> well, my... just, well, yeah sorry i was just gonna go over a few more things just, oh, just yeah, real quick um uh, i like both the ferraris movies from this year siberian zeros and ones i thought were really good uh definitely fans only kind of movies i think uh, especially siberia which feels just like a weird sum up of his like relationship with defoe as an actor you know yeah it's almost like he's traveling through like his their previous films together in this kind of hypnotic kind of surreal way that's very satisfying if you're a fan i don't know how people who've never seen a fear uh a ferrera movie would think of this movie they would probably be lost <laughs> i really liked uh gunda the uh i've mentioned on the podcast before the uh kosaklowski uh pig movie that, yeah uh, it's a lot of fun I have to say Mr. Wazo's movie from this year, Mandibles. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. I enjoy all of his stuff after Rubber. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think he has become like the most reliable 70-minute stoner comedy kind of guy. You know, 80-minute stoner comedy kind of reliable, fun movie guy. And uh, this one in Deerskin, I thought, you know, we're just totally pleasant and, and fun. Yeah, I really um, enjoyed Deerskin. We did a, a bonus episode on Riders of Justice. I thought that was a good one, although I'd agree with you that, you know, let's not go crazy over this one, but uh, but a pretty good movie that I enjoyed. Um, I guess that's it. I mean, I've already talked a lot about Benedetta and how much I love Benedetta, so I won't go into that anymore. But if you haven't seen Benedetta, see Benedetta. Why wouldn't you? I will, Benedetta? John. I'll see Benedetta. <laughs> I just I haven't been I haven't been going out to the theater to see new movies when I when I and uh, you meant you mentioned how we used to do our best of the year and we would do our our cute little awards and things like that I've got one cute little award that I put together yeah. for this for this episode you ready here it is yes holy shit who is the seemingly normal guy who's now kicking ass on a bus nobody in Shangji there you go. <laughs> uh, that's that's good I sort of yeah I I miss doing stuff like that maybe maybe someday again we'll we'll get it together but so here is my list uh which is the suicide squad village detective and bergman island uh and i think that those i stand by those as my favorite films of the year and yours john mine are uh, can't get you out of my head the night house wheel of fortune and fantasy and benedetta and suicide squad as well and the suicide squad and the village detective Yes. Okay. Are we going to do now? We had originally, when you and I conceived of this episode, we had said, we're not going to have enough for a full episode. We're not going to have enough movies to talk about. We're not going to have enough to do. Let's end it by giving the audience a top 10 list that we will stand behind. It's our consensus list in order, our top 10 Akira Kurosawa films. Are we still going to do that, Sean? I guess do we do we merge them in any way because we had a one or two slight differences even though we I, mer- were I merged very them. Close. I went oh, I went got through. It. Go for it then. Yes, yeah. because there's it. it was very easy to do. This is in order to John. This is one through ten, starting with what we feel is the best Akira Kurosawa film of all time, Seven Samurai. Next, our site's namesake, High and Low, featuring the pink smoke within it simply one of our favorite movies of all time then we have the hidden fortress red beard coming in at number five is our wild card sanjuro we both love sanjuro more than anybody else on the planet sanjuro is great and it's better than yojimbo next we have ran which is i think phenomenal movie these are every single one of these are among the greatest movies ever made so far coming in another wild card stray dog 
coming in this high at number seven, Stray Dog. This is, uh, you know, Kurosawa trying to make a Simonon movie. And uh, you and I both really, really like that movie. Then we have Dersu Urzala, which is, uh, you know, that's a real, if you know, you know, kind of movie. That's one of the, the real tests on if you actually know Kurosawa's work or not to understand that that should absolutely be in the top 10. Then we have Throne of Blood and we close out the top 10 with Yo Jimbo. And I think that, you know, the, the omission that people will get on us for are probably Rashomon and Ikiru, but uh, John and I really stand by this list. We really stand by this list. It's the Pink Smoke Consensus, Akira Kurosawa Top 10, and uh, no arguing about it. And that's, that's a more important list than any other Top 10 list you will read this year of the best films of 2021. Just, <laughs> just watch these movies instead. Whatever, whatever they're telling you to watch, watch these 10 instead. <laughs> I have to mention though that my runner-up that we never agree on is the Bad Sleep Well. You love the Bad Sleep Well. I do. I think it's a better Kurosawa Shakespeare merging than Throne of Blood. Even you know, I put it in his bottom ten. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not. I used to think it was my least favorite Kurosawa. Now I know that's Looney Tunes. I know that's an incorrect thought. I had before that that's that that was just a dumb thought to have I enjoy it more now than I used to uh certainly it's got a giant building shaped cake with a rose stuffed in it who can argue with that <laughs> um yeah that's it respond to that twitter that's our 2021 from from now on what we're going to do is uh Scorsese versus Kurosawa twitter we're going to start that beef I'm going to dig up some quotes where he was like, you know, I met those guys and Coppola and Lucas were really cool, but Scorsese, bit of a dork. I didn't like him playing Vincent Van Gogh. He wasn't any good at it. We're going to start made up quotes, start a Scorsese Kurosawa beef. Who would disagree? That was my question. <laughs> Kurosawa, Scorsese's movies don't allow me to get movies like Dodeskadin made anymore. Just manufacture quotes. <laughs> For it. That was a real Jane Campion-esque casting coup by Kurosawa. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for listening to the podcast this year. This was, you know, obviously by far our best year ever. We tripled our audience over the course of the year. Uh, thank you for subscribing to our Patreon. It allows our writers to be paid. Anybody who writes for the site gets money for it. Uh, thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for, you know, you know doing whatever it is that happens inside your your head in between your ear holes and if you like different movies if you love movies that we kind of dumped onto this that's cool that's cool it's cool to love movies go for it yeah i really don't want to argue about it with you and on top <laughs> of it i don't think i'm right keep in mind all of that if you're like you have terrible taste i'll be like it's probably true i mean who the fuck knows i don't i'm certainly not here to argue with you about you know, last night in Soho, I don't have a well-defined sense of that thing. You think I'm an idiot for not seeing it? I probably am. Don't, don't, don't need it. Don't need it in my life. Don't need the argument with you in my life. Don't need Dune in my life. Don't need Matrix Resurrections. Don't need any of it. Except Seven Samurai. <laughs> Seven Samurai, if you, if you want to say that Dursu Azala is bad, I will argue with you about that. I will argue with you uh, pretty indifferently, though. Pretty indifferent to most things. <laughs> Happy New Year, John Cribs. 
happy 2022.